there's the recordings from from Amit, the, the paramedic who, who was in that clinic. Um, some of the the recordings that she made, uh, the recordings, the, the calls that she made to to the dispatch room to say, "Where's my backup? Where's the ambulance?" Mm -hmm. And you can hear it getting more and more desperate. And she's got people critically injured, people dying around her. Um, uh, the, the, the horrific calls of the, the descriptions of, of, of what was actually seen um, came later. Welcome back to the Corin podcast. Um, we are joined this week by Arye Myers, who is a paramedic and works in the International Relations Department for Magen David Adom. Um, who will be sharing with us not only his uh, Torah al-Regalachat, uh, his Torah standing on one leg, um, but also talking about the work he's been doing over the past few weeks uh, during the war with Hamas. I'm certain this will be a, a very moving and inspiring conversation. Um, and so without further ado, uh, here is us speaking to Aryeh Myers from Magen David Adom, uh, his Torah al-Regalachat. We are very lucky to be joined uh, for this episode by Arie Myers, a paramedic for Magin David Adam, who also works in their international relations department. Arie, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of the Quran Podcast. Thank you for welcoming me to your podcast. So as we have done uh, with all of our guests this season, I guess we'll start by asking you, can you teach us the Torah or your Torah al-Regalachat while standing on one leg? Torah al-Regalachat, as far as a paramedic is concerned, is... Um, and that's what Magenda Vidadom is all about. That's what my role is all about, um, about saving lives. Um, and the lives we save are anyone's life, whoever we come across. And, and when we talk about sort of working in, in, in the Jewish state, everybody assumes that we are a Jewish ambulance service, but um, not just. Um, ambulance service with volunteers and employees from from every single part of Israeli society, whether Jewish or Muslim or Christian or uh, Druze or of no religion whatsoever. Um, and I think the one thing we share is that is that Torah al-Regalachat is, um, is going out there saving lives. So I think before we start addressing the, the elephant in the room, um, the thing that's been on everyone's minds the last you know, three, four weeks, um, can you tell us a bit about your background? What caused you to pursue a career as a paramedic? How did you come to Israel? And you can tell from, what well, listeners can tell from your accent, it's very similar to mine and the other Arie's accents. Um, you weren't born here. Um, so what's your background? How do you come to be a paramedic in Madra? And then we'll go from there. So I started off as a paramedic in London, um, originally from the north of England, having moved a little bit around the world via uh, England, then Israel, then Australia, then England, then Israel, then a couple of times backwards and forwards, um, and spent 10 years as a paramedic on the front line in, in London, uh, always with the aim to come back to Israel. Um, it took a little bit longer than planned, but moved back here 11 years ago, been working for, for Magenda Viladom ever since. Okay, so now, now to you know why why we called you specifically to talk and and the thing that we've all been thinking about. Um, so sorry if anyone was looking for a bit of light relief, but they're not going to find it here. Um, the last few weeks, um, how is your job, and what's your job look like? Uh, you know, just as a paramedic, in your role in the international relations department. You know what's. What's your day-to-day -day been? So the organization as a whole, um, as of 6.30 in the morning on, on Simchat Torah, um, I mean, when my phone buzzed once to say that there was uh, a Tzeba a red alert um, in the south, we just assumed that there was a rocket 
attack, um, which happened from time to time, and then it buzzed and beeped incessantly for for a long time, uh, which is when we started realizing that this was something a little bit bigger. Um, when the first calls came in from Magenta Viladom teams in the south, ambulance crews, um, EMTs, paramedics, one EMT, the, the, the call I heard come the, the recorded off the radio, he called the, the dispatch room in the area, which is the Lachish region, he said, um, terrorists in Sderot, terrorists in Sderot, I've been shot. Um, and that was one of the first reports that Magenta Viladom suddenly realized how big this this incident actually was. Um, so the incident started at 6.30 on, on, on a Shabbat morning, a Simchat Torah morning. Um, by 7.45, we already had bulletproof ambulances from different parts of Israel heading down to the south when we realized what, what the situation was. Um, our crews couldn't get into places like Be'eri. They couldn't get into certain parts of Sderot. They set up makeshift clinics. Uh, that, that call that came in, the, the ambulance driver that said, I've been shot at, couldn't get out of Sderot. So went to the house of one of our paramedics um, inside Sderot, and they basically opened up a clinic in there, and he started treating people who, who started turning up there. People started turning up. In his house? In his house. Um, with the limited equipment that he would have. Um, I'm sure he, he, like I, have uh, equipment in the car, um, and we can treat a person, two people, with the amount of equipment that we have. Um, but his house turned into a clinic, as did Sderot Ambulance Station, as did other ambulance stations in the area. Um, there, there was a, a dentist surgery in, in Kibbutz Beri, and we, have, uh, we had a paramedic there um, by the name of Amit, and she ran to the clinic and started treating people there and was in there for hours treating, we don't even know how many people she treated, um, until the terrorist eventually took over and, and, and she was killed in that clinic. Um, the situation in the first 24 hours was, was, was dire. I mean, by the time we understood the, the, the scope of it, the scale of it, I'm sure you, you remember as well, the first reports that came out on, on that Motsay Shabbat was there are 100 people killed, and then we heard it went up to 200, and those numbers kept climbing, and, and the number of injured is, is, is insane. I mean, over the last three weeks, we're talking about about 5,000 people injured, um, which are incredible numbers. Um, and that night, I spent a shift in Ashkelon. Um, and it's the first time that, that our ambulances and our crews have been directly targeted. And there's, there's videos um, of the ambulance in, in Beiri, the, the, one of the terrorists was wearing a Go, GoPro, and I'm sure you've seen it. The first thing he yeah. did was walk up to the ambulance, take very careful aim at the, the tires of the ambulance, and shoot them out so that uh, that ambulance uh, then couldn't be used. And it was the same in Kisufim, and it was the same in all sorts of different places, and our, our crews were directly targeted so that not only were they going on a killing spree, they were making sure that we couldn't get the help to the people that needed it. Um, and, and that night, like I said, I, I spent a shift in, in Ashkelon, and on the way to one of the calls for a direct rocket um, strike on, on a building, we had to stop the ambulance. And it's a bit of a surreal situation because we were driving through the streets looking to see where the, the Miguniot, the, uh, the shelters, they have shelters on the streets mm -hmm. in, in places like Ashkelon. And so we kind of looked. Every few hundred meters, you look to see where the nearest uh, shelter is, so that if there is a, a siren, then you can take shelter. And we had to do it twice on the way to that call. Um, and we arrived at the scene, and it was a, the fourth floor of the building that had been hit. 
and there was a family there of two parents, two little kids, but three and one, four and two, I can't remember how old they were, there or thereabouts, uh, who were in the safe room and nevertheless came out with sort of smoke inhalation and, and shrapnel injuries and things like that. And now we're thinking we're one ambulance and, and we've got four patients. It's not something we would normally do. And there's all sorts of things that we'd have to think about. And we thought about, can I fit four patients on my ambulance, number one? If I have to treat all four of them, how do I do that? Have I got enough pairs of hands? What happens if on the way to hospital now, we come under rocket fire again? How do I get four people, four patients, plus my crew off the ambulance in time to, to then seek shelter? And these, are, these are scenarios we never really imagined having to deal with. Um, the people who dealt with, with scenarios that were just beyond any level of belief were actually our call takers. And they were receiving, normally on a normal day, Makenda Viladon would receive about 5,000 calls a day, and they received 20,000 calls in, in those first few hours. Um, and you can't teach someone how to direct an eight-year-old kid who's describing how his parents were shot, how to take shelter in the cupboard under a pile of clothes and to hide his sister. Like these, these calls are horrifying. Um, and, and I know the world has seen some of the pictures and has heard some of the recordings, and I know that uh, um, certain journalists in Israel were, were exposed to, to some things that, that nobody else in the general public has been exposed to. Uh, and, but the scenes are horrendous. They're the scenes that we never expected to see. Um, and, and the phrase that, that we keep hearing at the moment is, never again is now. And, and these are really scenes that, um, unfortunately, we are seeing, um, and as Magenda Viladom, the, the the teams, the crews, there is there is a huge amount of resilience. We also, I mean, we have a huge organisation, uh, the largest volunteer organisation in Israel. So we have over thirty thousand volunteers, um, and all of these people basically said, "Okay, how can I help?" So they took ambulances, they took shifts, they went into clinics, they they, they did whatever they needed to be doing. Um, but from sort of a logistical point of view, we've had ambulances that have been taken out of commission. About a dozen ambulances in those first few hours were, were destroyed, either by direct gunfire, as was in that video, or by, by rocket fire. There was, um, there was a missile that hit Stigot Station, or just outside the station, and destroyed four ambulances. And, and again, these are, these are things that we've not had to deal with in the past. So that's where we are at the moment. Um, What's been happening over the last few weeks is that we've got this constant rocket fire in different parts of Israel, people being injured in different parts of Israel, whether it's in the south, whether it's in, in central Israel as well, um, has come under fire. The north of Israel is very um, delicate at the moment. Um, and again, there have been injuries from there as well. And we've got sort of 1,400 ambulances across Israel um, responding to everything. Normally we would have about between a third and half of those ambulances would be manned at any given time. But again, within the first hour of the war, we made sure that every single ambulance was, was out there. Um, and that's where we are right now, trying to kind of take stock, restock, uh, breathe when we can, sleep when we can. Um, I'm sure as well, like, as something that I think people probably forget is that there's also the element of, for those of us that aren't on the front lines, life is continuing as best as we can. And there's all the other regular calls and emergencies that also, as in trying to, I'm sure it's challenging trying to juggle essentially war needs and also someone has fallen over and hurt themselves or you know, their kid is sick and they need an ambulance. Right, so, so that same night that I was in Ashkelon, actually the first call I had despite the fact that there was rocket fire and, and red alerts and everything else, the first call I had was to a child having a seizure. I was like, well, that's, I mean, it's an emergency for the family, it's an emergency, there's no right. question. Yeah. But it was a little bit 
surreal considering what we were expecting to be facing and all of a sudden I'm expecting a, a, a routine call, a routine emergency, which is a bit of an oxymoron, but that, that's basically what our life is, is routine emergencies and, and this is anything but, uh, but the routine. I mean, how, how do you, how, as the ambulance driver, as the paramedic, how do you balance like the, the routine emergency versus the, the war emergency or the, the non-routine emergency? Is it, is it whatever comes in first you go or is there a... It's, yeah, whatever the call you're nearest to is the one you're going to get dispatched to. Um, there's different sort of levels of ambulances. There's like a, what we call a life support ambulance and, and there's an intensive care ambulance. Mm -hmm. So the, the crew of the, of the life support ambulances have slightly fewer skills than the, than the intensive care. Um, but in, in a war situation, if you're the nearest, whatever you are, you provide whatever aid you can, whether it's at an advanced level, whether it's not an advanced level. Um, and the idea, especially with like trauma patients, mm -hmm. is to get them to hospital as quickly as we possibly can. Obviously, in the first few hours, that was very, very complicated um, and, and nearly impossible. But now, again, we have routine emergencies and I could be dealing with, uh, with a regular drunk in the, in the streets of Tel Aviv. And then immediately following, I could be dealing with a rocket strike in Holon. Um, and, and that's what people are doing. That's what it's just the, the reality as it is. And you mentioned before in your sort of the guiding principle that every life is important. Um, and obviously, Magin David Adam's work with all lives in Israel, how has that, has that played out over the last couple of weeks? Obviously, lots of focus on the kind of Israel and is this, you know, Israel versus Hamas, Hamas versus Jews. But, you know, as, as you mentioned before, how's this played out in the fact that actually this is affecting all the citizens of Israel, irrespective of their religion? Or so it's affecting everybody. I mean, you, you would have seen that the rocket strikes are hitting places like Jerusalem, which mm -hmm. and, and different parts of Jerusalem. It could be a, an Arab um, neighborhood. It could be, I mean, a, a, they're firing towards Beersheba, and there's a load of Bedouin settlements uh, around Beersheba, um, and, and several members of the, of the Bedouin community have been injured and killed um, by, by rocket fire. Um, and we have staff and volunteers who live in those communities. So you'll see, and, and people still find it incredible. I mean, when I talk to, to people in, in overseas, they find it amazing that we'll have an Arab volunteer, a Muslim Arab volunteer, um, living in a place like Rahat, um, the largest sort of Bedouin town in, in, in the world, I think. Um, and we'll walk around with a Magen David Adon, or Magen David on, on his uniform and I'll walk around the city without, without any problem. Um, and not only will they walk around without any problem, they're respected for it. Um, and it means that we have people from within those communities who are providing aid in those communities. And it means that we have, we have an in to all these sorts of different places. Uh, about a year ago, the first female Bedouin paramedic finished her paramedic course, qualified as mm -hmm. paramedic. That's a big step. Um, for the Bedouin community, more than this for, for Magen David Adom. But again, it, it was something that, that brought the organization, uh, um, I guess, a sense of pride that we can, be, we can be that organization within this country that is able to, to say we treat everybody and we have everybody on our teams from every single part of that community. Uh, and again, it gives us an in. If I've got somebody on my, on my crew that speaks Arabic and we have an Arab patient, that's, that's fantastic. Yeah. Very, very helpful, right? right? Um, or Russian or Ethiopian. My, my first, on my first shifts in Israel, there was, when I first joined my Gendavid Adon, there was me, so the English guy who was just made Aliyah. Um, there was a Russian doctor, there was an Ethiopian ambulance driver, and there was a Muslim Arab volunteer. And I spent eight hours being called the foreign guy. <laughs> it's like, I mean, that, that, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Um, and we don't ask when we get to the, I mean, yes, I'll ask what, what the patient's name is, but that's it. 
that's where it stops. I need to know what his name is. And if his name is Muhammad and, and, and I need to treat him, then I'm going to be treating Muhammad. Um, and the same, if I'm working with Muhammad and he happens to treat somebody in, uh, I don't know, Mashalim, there's not going to be a question. Um, and in a way, it's, it makes our lives easier. It, there is, back in Shomrei Khomot, what Shomrei Khomot called in English? Guardian of the Walls, uh, Operation Guardian of the Walls, there was a huge uprising within the Arab population within Israel. We're not seeing that this time. Mm -hmm. Um, and we're not feeling that friction this time. This time, is, 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 there's something very different. Um, and even then, when there was all of this friction, I was working in, in the ambulation in, in Lod, and Lod is about 30% Arab. Um, and even then, you could walk into the ambulance station in Lod, and you'd be working with a Muslim guy, or, and it didn't make a difference. Um, and I think it's something particularly special about, about where I work. I think it's very special. It's one of the things that, you know, Magen uh, Adam is known for, and, and especially at a time like this, it, it remains incredibly inspirational. Um, as well as sort of that, like, cooperation between staff and volunteers within MADA, uh, and sort of nationally as well, that, you know, you can walk through a Bedouin settlement with Magen David Adam uniform on and, and gain respect from that. What sort of... Uh, interplay, cooperation, whatever it, it, are you seeing between the other organization, whether it's Hatsala or Zaka or the army, what, how's, how's that relationship working at the moment? Right, so on, on an official level, Magendavidadom is the auxiliary arm of, of the IDF during, during wartime. Um, so we have, a lot of our staff have actually been taken into, into Miloim, right? so they're on reserve duty. A lot of our paramedics are now serving in the army as, as, as paramedics. Um, but we also have our own reserve team, reserve duty, I guess, within Magen David Adom, so exactly the same, they get a Tzav Shmone, and, and that Tzav Shmone says, you are required to be at such and such a station. So people, are, it's usually our volunteers, who are then brought into, into Magen David Adom. Um, as far as working with, with other organizations, we have close cooperation with, with everybody. Um, there's two dozen Hatzalah organizations across Israel. Um, Anybody who's registered on our system as a first responder um, as, and is registered with the, with the Ministry of Health, doesn't matter which organization they happen to belong to, um, will get the calls in exactly the same way. So same way that my phone knows exactly where I am and the system knows exactly where I am. If I'm automatically dispatched to a call, it could just as easily be uh, somebody from Hatala. It could be just as easily somebody from, from Zaka. Um, and, and we all respond to the same things and we all provide the same care. Um, that, that's the, the idea and the ideal. Um, and on the whole, that's where we are. And just in terms of, I guess, what you've been doing, you, you shared some um, some of your experiences from that Simchat, from that Monte Shabbat, I guess. But since then, what have you been doing, sort of day to day? So my day to day role is working with the, with the fundraising department, um, the international relations department. So it's doing a lot of Hasbara. It's talking to to um, uh, journalists overseas. It's talking to donors overseas. It's talking to we work with we have friend societies in different countries mm -hmm. around the world who help us uh, fundraise. Um, despite the fact that Magen David Adam is government mandated, it is not government funded. Uh, so we have to do a, a lot of fundraising. Um, it's one of those welcome to Israel <laughs> concepts. Um, so we have to do a lot of fundraising. And the fundraising is actually, we've seen, there's been a lot of support from Again David Adom from, from our usual sources and from a lot of sources that are that we from a, a completely different demographic. Um, 
and people are looking at Magenda Verdom and saying, you're there to save lives, and, and we want to support that. That's number one. And number two, if they want to look at it sort of from a negative point of view, they're, they're now seeing Hamas in a very, very different light. Right? If once upon a time, every, the, the, let's call it the, the Western media would, would look at Hamas and say, they're the Palestinian representatives, be nice to them. They're seeing a very different side of Hamas um, as, as far as, as Israel as, as, as a country is concerned and, and what we've faced and, and the horrors that, that, that we've seen. And I think that's made a difference to a lot of people's attitudes towards Israel um, and then by extension to, to us as well. Um, when you can look at an organization and say they are there literally just to help others, it makes it kind of a somewhere that you want to help, um, somewhere that you want to feel a part of saving lives in Israel, even if you live in, I don't know, Los Angeles or London or wherever else. So what sort of like conversations have you had with people overseas? Have you had any interesting experiences or comments or things? I mean, you mentioned you've seen un funding coming from unexpected sources anywhere, anything? So I had, I had to have a phone call this morning. At 6.30 this morning, the, the phone rings, and I'm thinking, if it's 6.30 in the morning, it's not going to be anybody from Israel, and this is some form of emergency. And look at the number. It's a, it's a phone number from, from the States. And I have a conversation, uh, obviously, not going to tell you who the conversation was with, but somebody very involved in sort of the whole Hollywood scene, that's that part of it, and and it's again, it's not somebody we would expect to hear from um, vocally supporting Israel, um, financially supporting Israel. It, it's we we normally expect sort of that side of the world to to be a little bit more critical, um, but very much the opposite this time around. Um, and and these are conversations we're getting all the time. Organisations, companies that are, are um, helping us and fundraising for us um, that. Some of them have just made the direct approach. They're not being approached by Magen David Adam, but they've they've looked for for someone that they feel would be right to support, and that right to support has been has been the National Life Saving Organisation. So, mm. hence they've they've come to us. I mean, so you said you were talking to lots of like uh, foreign journalists and and the Western media, and uh, it, it, this could just very well be like the algorithm. Um, but you know, a, a lot of what we're seeing here, it does tend to, there's still um, perhaps a, a wanting of some journalistic integrity from some outlets that don't need to be mentioned by name. Um, or even, although people are seeing Hamas for what they really are now, certainly seeing them in a different light, um, there does seem to be some, some more, um, you know, tr trying to contextualize and trying to give nuance when nuance doesn't as in the, the stories we all we've all heard the things that we're all you know being kept up at night about still we were trying to say well you know about the occupation and, and what's your interaction with with those foreign journalists been like what what are the things that they're asking about what are the things that you're talking to them about so most of the conversations i've had have been it's been very surprising and and the journalists have actually been listening um, and hearing which is something we're not used to um, so much in Israel. Um, I can't talk from a political standpoint because no, 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 we're, we're an apolitical organization. We have to be an apolitical organization. It's absolutely right. And again, that's what allows us to be who we are and to, to have the staff that we have and to treat the people that we treat. Um, and when they look for a sort of a, a political angle, then I'm not willing to give it um, because that's, that's not your job. That's not yeah. who I am. Yeah. Um, but when they want to talk about Israel, 
then I think I can give them a very good example of what, again, I look at Mada as, uh, as, um, as a microcosm of the state of Israel, of, of what the ideal could be. Um, and I think it's, it's somewhere that we can, can aim for, uh, hope for and pray for, I guess. But there's been, there has been some more support. Yes, we're still seeing the, some of the uh, journalist um, outlets or the news outlets still being very critical and, and, and this question of the buzzword of the day is, is proportionality. That's what we keep hearing about. Um, and I think we will keep hearing it because that's how the world looks at it. The world isn't experiencing what we're experiencing. Um, and they look at it very sort of at this point, this is what we can see. If you look at, like you were saying before, mm -hmm. about context, um, and, and in the context of, of what's, what's happened in the history of, of the state of Israel, this is unprecedented. Um, people have been calling it sort of the, the, the second war of independence. Um, mm -hmm. I don't know. It feels like just a continuation of the first, but that's, that's just me. You mentioned before, obviously in London, you were also working as an EMT in the ambulance service there. Are you still in touch with any people you work with there? Have you been in touch with them over the past couple of weeks? I can imagine that while obviously there's probably certain uh, serious cases you might have had to deal with when you were working in an ambulance in London, I assume maybe not that none of your colleagues in, in London ever sort of dealt with rocket fire and the things that you're doing now. Are you in touch with any of them? So I'm still in touch with quite a few people. Um, I've had a lot of messages of support, uh, which is always nice to receive. Um, on, on a personal basis, on, on a, I mean, they may not understand necessarily what we're going through, but then they understand that we're going through something. Um, and as far as London is concerned, the last major terror attack they faced was 7-7 was back in 2005. Um, long may it stay that way. Mm -hmm. um, and I hope and pray that they never get to experience anything like what we are experiencing and uh, rocket fire. <laughs> it's, it's incomprehensible yeah. to, to most paramedics around the world. Um, but again, they, they, they've sent me messages of support because they know me. Um, but I think that's part of, of, of getting that story out there, of, of expressing what we're seeing, what we're feeling, what we're going through. Um, but again, that, that, that support is there. Is that one of the things that, I mean, you, you mentioned earlier, is you know, the, just the, the sheer volume of calls um, that came into Mother Volunteers and, and uh, you know, the, in the call centers, yeah. the dispatch, um, you know, in, in those first few hours. Um, am I right in understanding that you, you've been listening to a lot of those calls? You've heard a lot of those calls. Are, are there things that you're able to, to share with us? I mean, we're not trying to, um, we're not looking for a shock value. We're not, we're not looking to traumatize anyone. And I think even protect ourselves from, from hearing these things, but you've, you've been listening to them. Are there things that you can share that perhaps, you know, really show just 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 how uh, I mean, the only way that comes to mind is horrific. Just just how awful those first few hours were. These unprecedented, unheard of things. Um, what can we say? Um, I was talking about that call that came in from from the ambulance driver. Who mm -hmm. that was kind of the the first realization we had of of how serious this was. Um, we got calls from ambulance crews. We got calls from change over time is seven o'clock. So the rocket started at six thirty in the morning. The morning shift normally comes in for seven. So a lot of our crews were on on their way to station. Um, I saw a video yesterday of somebody wearing a, a MADA uniform who was on his way to station who suddenly realized that there were terrorists shooting in his direction, managed to 
actually managed to guide another car, kind of screamed and yelled at them and don't go down that way, go the other way, um, and kind of ran while being chased by these terrorists. And then there was a report from him as well as to what's going on. Um, there was this this eight-year-old that was hiding in a cupboard um, with his sister and, and, and our dispatcher literally trying to kind of get the information while understanding that he's talking to an eight-year-old child um, who described very calmly terrifyingly calmly um, how they went outside and one of his parents was killed and then they ran in a different direction and another one of his parents was killed and then they ran and they hid. And our dispatcher is there and again in this unbelievable composure um, explaining, asking how much battery have you got left on your phone? Right, so can I call you back and make sure the phone is on silent? And, and, and in the background you can hear the gunshots. Um, and there's the recordings from, from Amit, the, the paramedic who, who was in that clinic. Um, some of the, the recordings that she made, uh, the recordings, the, the calls that she made to, to the dispatch room to say, where's my backup? Where's the ambulance? Mm -hmm. And you can hear it getting more and more desperate. And she's got people critically injured, people dying around her. Um, uh, the, the, the horrific calls of the, the descriptions of, of, of what was actually seen um, came later. Came later. I think there was the, the, the first few hours was just literally describing the incident, the, the war that was breaking out. Mm. Um, and and the, the more difficult calls came later. They, they, some of them were only described by Zaka, for example, who, who went in afterwards to, to recover the bodies. Um, The, the the reality was that they the, those were the calls that were coming in like, like where is my help how can you get it to me and it took some time before we could get people in there, there were ambulance crews who were rushing into the scene in non bulletproofed um, ambulances as fast as they could to get somebody out to get them to a bulletproof ambulance that could then get them out the city into into hospital but again that that was a process that took time because the the army had to sort of ensure that we could actually get in there. And in the meantime, these calls keep coming in of, of any help. Uh, it was very, very difficult to get to them. That shift change happening at seven o'clock, that made response times better or made it so much more difficult? Um, or there's no, there's no way to measure just because it was so awful. I don't know how it was measured. I know that the night teams didn't go home. Right. And the morning teams came in, so yes, we had more teams, but we couldn't necessarily get them onto the ambulances. Um, a lot of them ended up treating people in the stations. Mm -hmm. So Sderot station became like a, a clearing station, basically, the, like the, a triage station. And um, the critically injured, when they could get them out, they were obviously the first people to, to be evacuated to the hospitals. Um, and it, it was a process that took time. They were treating much more on the scene than they were. and. and people were coming to them because that was the safest way and the safest option to to get that treatment. And what what the mother need? Um, I'm sure listeners are especially listeners in the diaspora are listening and thinking, you know, what can I do? Obviously there's fundraising efforts all the time and especially at a time like this. What what can our listeners do? So those overseas um, can Google your nearest um, Magendavidadom Friends Society, if you're in the UK, MDA UK, if you're in, in the States, it's American Friends of Magendavidadom, different countries, different parts of the world. Um, Google uh, Magendavidadom in whichever country you're in, um, and 
obviously we're doing we're doing a lot of fundraising and that fundraising is going towards ambulances that we desperately need I mean we normally replace several hundred ambulances every year um, we're going to need a lot more than that we're looking now at more bulletproof ambulances than, than we had um, Several of the ambulances were, were completely destroyed, so obviously we have to take that, that into account as well. Um, and also a huge amount of, of medical equipment that, again, if we've had 5,000 casualties in, in the space of three weeks and, and a lot of them critically injured, mm. there's been a lot of equipment that's been used. So we're, we're looking at fundraising to kind of restock our supplies. Um, and, and we're looking to around the world to do that. Um, sourcing those supplies within Israel at the moment is very difficult because... Mm -hmm. A lot of it's been used up, um, and now we're looking to, to kind of restock. So have a look at websites, and that's probably the best way. We've had offers of of, uh, of help from, from paramedics and EMTs and, and everybody from, from all around the world. At the moment, as far as manpower is concerned, we're okay. Um, so those who want to physically come to Israel to help, we're kind of less looking for. Um, those who can help us financially, then absolutely. We try and bring in ambulances and source them from all different parts of the world as well, uh, even ones that not the ambulances that we usually we usually use. But if we can find that they're ready and we can ship them in, we're going to use those as well. Uh, so that's what we're looking to do, and then rebuild ourselves as well. Wow. Um, you mentioned, I guess, again, going back to your original Torah, the idea of of sort of it's like like you're saving a whole world um obviously we're still in the midst of things everything's still very fresh very raw i guess are there any I guess, success stories maybe is that you might be able to share in terms of where you've seen that that actually we're already seeing you know worlds saved or preserved so there have been thousands and thousands of casualties, um, and we're now talking about hundreds of people in hospital. So somewhere along the way, thousands of people are making a recovery. Um, there was, I, I saw just a few days ago that one of our ambulance staff that was one of the first injured, um, he was shot twice or three times, and was actually discharged from hospital and, and welcomed home to to singing and dancing, which is which is very jarring. Um, we're still trying to live our lives with some element of of, of, of that joy of, of of the fact we're still living, um, and and that's one of those success stories. And, and the first one of the first things he said was as soon as he stood up and got out of his hospital bed was when can I go back on shift? You. <laughs> Um, beyond my level of comprehension, uh, there are some, some incredible, incredible people out there who are, who are doing amazing things. Um, we're working at it constantly. We are. I think that's a good, a good note to end on. Um, so thank you very much to Ari Myers. And always to Ari Grossman as well. But thank you to Ari Myers for giving us uh, your time. Um, taking some time out from literally saving lives, saving whole worlds. Um, so any listeners who do want to get involved, then please do. Uh, we're not going to do our usual plug for, for Karen and Karen books and discounts and things like that. You can listen to other episodes to find those. Um, but today we're going to tell you to go to, uh, or to Google Magen David Adam. Um, if you're able to donate to your local chat, to your local friends organization, um, then please do. Uh, you will, would, you would literally be saving a life. Um, and with that, thank you again. Thank you. That's all we've got time for this week. Thank you again to Arie uh, for giving us his time.
um, and taking time out from literally saving lives. Um, if you want to uh, support Magenda Viradam in the work that they're doing um, at the moment, uh, the important work that they do, uh, both in treating those who have been affected directly by the current situation in Israel, um, and just making sure that people have access to the uh, treatment that they need, um, please do consider donating to them. Um, as Arya said, the best thing to do is simply to Google Magen David Adon um, to find the easiest and simplest way for you to donate uh, wherever you are in the world. Uh, we'll see you again in a couple of weeks for another episode of the current podcast, Al Regal Achat. Uh, until then, goodbye.